right, we're back in 2 Corinthians this morning, chapter 7. As we pointed out to before, the first verse of the 7th chapter ought to be the last verse of the 6th chapter because it closes Paul's argument that the people of God should be different from the world, be separate. You're, you're, we're the temple of God. And uh, we have... Uh, because we're the temple of God, we should not have any unbiblical connections with wicked around us. And rather that we should be uh, regarding, regarding ourselves as his dwelling place, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And so, he, so Paul here quotes from Leviticus with respect to the old uh, covenant uh, qualifications for the temple that the people should be separate. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. This were both uh, the law from Leviticus and from the prophets there from Isaiah. And Paul then presses that sons and daughters of God must separate themselves unto the Lord and cleanse themselves from all defilements and to complete. And this is what it's all about. We are in the process of completing our holiness in the fear of God. This involves faith and repentance. And Paul's going to deal with this issue of what true repentance is all about. And that's, what, that's really the theme of our message this morning. True repentance when grief is not to be grieved over in this uh, passage here. But in the first section here of this seventh chapter, well, beginning with verse number two then, uh, Paul is actually completing a thought that he left off in chapter six, verses 11 to 13. And uh, I'm going to, well, I'm not going to read that. But note, uh, well, let me, yeah, let me read it for you, 11 to 13. Uh, it says here, for see what, no, uh, chapter 6, <laughs> I'm reading the wrong chapter, Second Corinthians 6, 11 to 13, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, our heart is open, you are not restricted by us. But you are restricted in your own affections. And here, this is a powerful truth. Our problem is not others, it's us. It's our own heart. Paul said, we, had, we haven't hindered you in any way. If you're hindered, you're the cause. You're the reason. So then he says, in return, I speak to, as to children. <laughs> I'm a father, and I'm talking to my kids here. Widen your hearts also. Open your hearts to us. See, there's some question about Paul. Paul's teachers were telling them that Paul was really not a servant of God. Although Paul's the one who came into the city of Corinth, preached the word of God with great power and conviction, saw many people converted to Jesus Christ, even in the midst of great 
opposition from the Jews. Even to the point where God had to come to him and encourage him. I have many people in this city. Take heart. Press on. Don't be discouraged. I've got a lot of people in this city. And if these people had thought back and understood their beginning, they would have realized Paul is not our enemy. But sadly, this is a this is the problem with the false teachers was some some of the folks were beginning to question Paul and shut him out. Really, that's what this means. Don't shut us out. Don't do it. So notice then as he begins in that second verse, make room in your hearts. Open your hearts to us. Widen your hearts. Open your hearts. Make room in your hearts. So Paul is to defend his ministry. His arguments uh, that he presented may have appeared to them to be hard and implacable. No doubt his enemies in Corinth played on the appearance of the man and tried to turn the church against him. But this attack burdened Paul greatly. Thus he pled with them, make room in your hearts for us. In other words, stop shutting us out. Receive us. We're God's servants for your good. And he already knows what has transpired uh, because he, he's been with Titus now. And this is the purpose, the whole purpose of this letter is receiving the report of Titus. Now he's responding to that report, writing back to these believers. And he gives then points in his defense. There, and three of them, he says here, uh, his use of divine authority, and, and really that's what he's talking about. He's an apostle. He has used divine authority. He has, he's acted somewhat like a dictator. But he said, in, use, in the use of this divine authority, I've harmed to no one. Nobody got hurt. In fact, you were helped. Not only that, but he said, I have corrupted no one. Not like the false teachers who were corrupting the truth. He said, I've taught you the pure, unadulterated word of God. You haven't, your, your, your uh, philosophy, your religion, your thinking has not been corrupted in any way. I haven't hurt your th thinking or defiled anyone. I haven't caused anybody to be corrupted morally. I've hurt no one. Neither in your thinking, nor in your acting. No one has been defiled. Neither did he take advantage of anyone. Like the false teachers. You know, this is the one, this is the one thing that we need to be careful of. Sometimes people come to us with, with uh, kind of pride building 
compliments. Oh, making us feel good so that they can take advantage of us. Paul said, I didn't do that. I was not interested in taking advantage of anybody. Rather, Paul assured them that he loved them. They were in his heart. He, he lived with the desire to see them prosper in the things of the Lord. That their spiritual welfare was his sole objective. His great boldness toward them. He said, I had great boldness toward you. And that was, uh, was due to his confidence in them. Not fear that he might offend them. But that if they were truly spirit-led, as true believers would be, that whatever he said to them and however hard it came across to them, they would respond to it in a proper way. So he said uh, here in verse number 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. I know you belong to God. I know you're children of God. And I know that whatever God brings into your life, you're going to receive it as from God. True, there was a period when Paul was greatly troubled. That, it, you know, the, what I like about that, it shows that Paul was a human being too. When he went into Macedonia, it says he was greatly troubled. He was... He had trials there in Macedonia and then on top of the trials he had in Macedonia was his burden for the church there in Corinth and his fear that what was developing there may, may not turn out the way he wanted. Paul, Paul, didn't, you know, Paul didn't know what was going to happen there in Corinth. And when uh, he didn't see Tim, uh, Titus, when Titus was slow in getting to him, man, he, he was uh, troubled greatly, and he admits it. See, that, that's not wrong. It's the outcome. It's what, uh, what comes out of it. So he says, I was greatly comforted by the coming of Titus. There in verse 6, Titus's report assured Paul of God's work of grace in the, in the true saints there in Corinth who were longing, mourning, and zealous for Paul. Ah, so they had received his letter in, a, in the right spirit and had repented of their errors and Paul now uses this response to discuss the doctrine of, of repentance and what true repentance is all about. So that my first point this morning is the need for repentance. The need for repentance. And this is found in verses 8 through 11. And before we get actually get into that, I need to discuss here what repentance is. Repentance 
And sadly, this is one of the areas that in modern evangelical Christianity you, you don't hear too much of. But it is a necessary companion of the Christian life. Ron spoke about faith this morning. Faith and repentance are, are, are twins that we must have if we are truly believers in Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand. Uh, we, we enter the Christian life by trusting Jesus Christ. We believe in Him. That's initial faith. But, that, but a lot of people kind of treat it as if it's a one-time thing. I put my trust in Jesus and that's all I need to do. No. Your faith keeps on after that, you keep believing. You keep on trusting. You keep on. And that's exactly the way it is with repentance. We repent at the beginning of our salvation experience. But that, that's not a one-time final thing. We continually repent after that. We're constantly repenting just as we are always believing. Both faith and repentance are required to save people. They grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord through faith and repentance. Both. And both faith and repentance, in fact, it is my opinion that this is why uh, those who are born again of the Spirit of God who receive the gift of God's grace in faith and repentance are called believers. We're called believers. That means I'm, I'm believing today, I believed yesterday, I'm going to believe tomorrow, I'm going to keep on believing. That doesn't mean we do it perfectly as we already have uh, suggested that, you know, in the case of Abraham and in, in uh, the case of David and in the case of, of even Paul himself, we do stumble. There are times when, when our faith is lacking. We hard, hard times come upon us and we begin to be discouraged and we think, is God really with me at all? But here's the here is the point. I, I turn with me if you would if, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter six because let me try to explain. I really believe what this passage, which has troubled many people, to think that that is possible to lose your salvation. I don't think Paul is uh, is describing here anybody losing his salvation, but he's talking here about people who. Quit believing and quit repenting. He said, let us leave, verse 1 says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of what? Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And of 
instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permits. See, God's the one who does it. Then he says here, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the age of come and have fallen away. Here, here are people who were with us. They said they, that they were trusting Jesus. They, they rejoiced in the things of God. They, they, fell, and they, they tasted the goodness of the word of God. But they fell away. And when Paul talks about falling away, he means they fell away. It means that they didn't just stumble a little bit and, and they're going to catch themselves like David and come back to the Lord. Just as they fell away. And he says, if they fall away, it's impossible to restore them. Again, to what? Repentance. Because to do so would require them to crucify again, once again the Son of God and uh, to their own harm and hold Him up. In, but what they're doing is they're holding Him up. In, they have denied Him and to their own harm and are holding Him up to contempt. And then he explains, and then he explains it here in verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it was cultivated receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being crushed, cursed, and its end is to be burned. What's he saying there? By their fruits you shall know them. True believers, when they stumble, will always come back because God won't let them remain in that condition. And But Paul's writing here to some Hebrew believers that were beginning to question because of the hardness of their lives whether that they should continue to believe in Jesus but go back to their Hebrew roots. And he's telling them, if you do this and you fall away, it will prove that you never were genuinely born from above. Because it is impossible to restore you to, to repentance. You'll be like the, the ground that produces weeds and you're worthless and should, will be subject to the fire. Say, so here's the point. Because here the, the, here, the truth of the matter is God, it's not you 
that you know you're required to keep on believing and you're required to keep on repenting but you can't do it no nobody can do it on his own repentance and faith is a gift of god and this is what paul's telling them in hebrews if they fall away it is because God has not granted them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. They're a gift of God. So we read there in Acts chapter 11 about folks who were glorifying God and saying, then, they were rejoicing in this, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God did it. They didn't all say, oh, yeah, it'd be a good thing to repent. No, God granted them repentance. See, both are required for salvation, faith and repentance. Paul defended his gospel work to the elders in Ephesus, declaring to them his teaching and testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Acts chapter 20 and verse 21 when he was on the island of Miletus there and speaking to uh, the, uh, the Ephesian elders. And then Paul instructs Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And why? God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's my... That's my prayer for those who fall away. Lord, if they truly belong to you, will you grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth? Will they return to you? Or will they be those described here in Hebrews 6 of those impossible to restore? So, that, let's get in then to, to the a text that's before us and we want to look at first things first here which is verses 8 and 9 Paul said even if for even if I made you grieve with my letter I do not regret it it's interesting how Paul's use of words here because I'll share with this what these mean in a minute here I do not regret it, he says, though I did regret it. <laughs> I don't regret it, but I did for a, for a minute. For I see that the that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. A godly grief. So that you suffered no loss through us. There's two kinds of grieving. 
There's a grieving of the world that doesn't produce anything worthwhile. And there's a grieving from God that produces repentance. And this is the point that he's, that he's making here. And it starts out with the uh, friendship of rebuke. God uses his servants to rebuke people who are living in disobedience. So Paul tells Timothy there in chapter 4 verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and instruction, teaching. Preaching then must include rebuke. Because rebuke produces repentance. True repentance. God gives it and grants it. So Paul had rebuked the Corinthians with his hard letter. That's 1 Corinthians. I, You know, I, this past week there, I did some rethinking on this matter. Uh, I have thought that perhaps Paul, there were two, three and maybe four letters were involved here in this whole process. But consider this argument that if Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, a real apostle, would anything he write to a church in, in, by way of letter not be divinely inspired of the Holy Spirit of God? So is it possible for then we might have letters that are lost, that are not in this book? I don't know. I, I, I'm still struggling with that. But uh, some, some believe that that cannot be. There can't be any letter of Paul that he wrote to a church that is not inspired of the Holy Spirit and that could be lost. So we're only talking about two letters here. But I would agree with most commentators here that the letter that's referred to in this uh, text here is 1 Corinthians. There, was debate. there were lots of problems in that church. And Paul writes a hard letter to them. 1 Corinthians is not an easy letter. It's a hard letter. And he wrote them this hard letter. And then after he wrote it to them, and he's waiting for to, to find out from Titus how they received that letter, because I believe Titus took it to them, or at least he went there shortly after they received the letter. That he, then he says, I, I, I am, I'm regretting it. I'm feeling bad about it. I, I'm a little grieved over it. This was a hard letter. But I don't really regret it because you needed it. You needed the rebuke. Boy, you read that fifth chapter about how they tolerated the sin of this brother that, that uh, Paul said not even the heathen around here would tolerate that. And you are, and claiming that, that you're doing it in the love of Christ, you're hurting the gospel here, not helping it. So, uh, he was a little grieved over the rebuke, <laughs> fearing that they might not receive it in a proper way. Because, see, that shows the humanness of Paul. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure he thought about the fact that when the Holy Spirit... Uh, you know, when God spoke to him there in that uh, dream at night, saying, 
Hey, Paul, take courage. Don't be afraid. Nobody's going to hurt you. I've got I've much people in this city. But nevertheless, he's concerned about how they received his letter. I said, I regret it. I had some concern. Verse 8, even, even if I... Even, but then, however, when they did receive it, Paul then... Uh, Paul caused him to regret his regret. <laughs> to regret his regret. For even, he says, if I made you grieve by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. <laughs> it's being open and honest with these people. I like that. Their proper response demonstrated the authenticity of their faith. They repented with true repentance. So, then we, we note here, when, when grieving does its proper work, re grieving, regret, or regret, grieving, that's a translation of the same word. There's, there's actually two words that are translated in the, the uh, uh, Bible, repent. We read, that God in the Old Testament repented of, for example, his de his determination to, to kill off the Jews there in the wilderness and to make Moses. He said, okay, I've changed my mind. Does God change his mind? Can God ever repent in that sense? When, when the scripture talks about God repenting, what is it talking about? I think it's what it's doing there. It's using this, the dictionary definition of the Greek word to repent uh, that's translated in, in the English Standard Version here as regret or to grieve or to regret. See, there's two words. One of them is a strictly emotionally based word. Feelings. That's what Paul's talking about there when he says, uh, for even if I made you feel bad with my letter, I do not feel bad that I did it. Though I felt bad that I did it. That's, that's really the idea behind it. It's feelings. Emotions. So how do you explain God's change, apparent change of mind? God's determined to do something and then suddenly He doesn't do it and He repents. He repented of the evil that He intended to do them. It's putting into human language a, a, way, a, a way to explain God. Now, the, here's another question. Can, does God have emotions? Can God feel? I think He does. But not in the same sense that we do. His feelings are not volatile. He doesn't have one feeling one minute and another feeling another minute. But the biblical writers are trying to express why God changed His mind. Does God ever change His mind? No. But it appears that way. 
Humanly speaking, it appears that way. God knows what he knows what he's doing, and he knew what he was going to do. Was he dishonest? No. Because the circumstances would have resulted in the destruction of the people of God in that, in that sense. But what did God do? He worked in the heart of Moses to pray for their salvation. And Moses offered arguments to God, and God said, okay, I won't do it. But he had already planned not to do it. <laughs> See, this is, look, this, this, is, this is one of those things that's a little bit difficult for, the, for our human minds to comprehend because we don't really see, we don't really understand the mind of God. And that's why I believe that the writers of Scripture are using language which they, uh, which they under the, the power of the Holy Spirit of God, the, the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, are writing down. So that the we reader can read it and we can say, yeah, I, I understand that in my human context. People do change their minds. And I think that's what Paul is referring to here. I made you change, change your mind about something and I don't regret. I, I have no regret that I did that. Although I did regret it, but I changed my mind. But I changed my mind. Their response demonstrated then, as I said, the authenticity of their faith. So, when grieving does its proper work, and here's the thing, there are, as I said, there are two words. The second word, what is repentance? That, that we see in verses 10 and 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, he's talking about two, two kinds of griefs here. A godly grief and a worldly grief. The worldly grief produces death. And sometimes people get in a position where they're so upset about something that's come into their life that they throw God under the bus. And they don't get over it. And that is worldly grief that produces death. And that's is I really believe, is what Paul is referring to there in Hebrews 6. When they fall away. Godly grief that is produced by the Holy Spirit of God leads to repentance which leads to salvation. See, here's another thing. My, you know, somebody said, well, I'm saved. How do, you, how do you know you're saved? Well, because when I was 13 years old, I went forward and I accepted Jesus in a revival meeting and then I was baptized and, uh, and I'm saved. Well, are you living like a saved person today? Well, I don't go to church. I don't really, I'm not really interested in the things of God. I never read my Bible. I don't pray at all. And I love worldly things. But I'm saved because back there when I was 13 years old, I put my faith in Jesus. 
No, 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 that's not how it works. When you're saved, you're born again of the Spirit of God, your life has changed. You're now a new creature in Christ Jesus. You began this experience of faith when the Holy Spirit brought you into the family of God through regeneration. And faith is the evidence of regeneration. Repentance is also the evidence of regeneration. And you repented of your old life. But we don't perfectly repent of it. See, that's the problem. And as we don't have perfect faith, neither do we have perfect repentance. And that's the whole point. God is working in us a godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation, that leads to our ultimate, full salvation when Jesus returns or we pass away. And this is a salvation we'd never regret. That's the other, see, that's the other word. Godly grief produces a, a, a repentance that's never grieved over. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And then Paul applies it to them. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Prove you were truly believers. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. We don't want Paul doubting us. We don't want Paul thinking that we're against him. What indignation, he says. What fear. What longing. What zeal. See, this is all... This is part of the grieving that leads to repentance. Yea, he says, what punishment? At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. That is, you proved yourselves genuine believers. So that, that brings me to the second word. The second word, repentant, that's translated repentance, comes from a compound of two words, uh, meaning after and to think. To th afterthought. An afterthought. The second word is used in, uh, of the doctrine of repentance. And it is only used of evangelical repentance. It's never, it's never used in any other way. Whereas the first word, grief, you can see it's used in two ways. Godly grief and worldly grief. But here's, a, here's an important thing that, that we need to understand too. Repentance is a doctrine and it cannot be based on the mere definitionary, the, def, the dictionary definition of the word, which a lot of people try to do. They try to say, oh, it's just a change of mind. Repentance is just a change of mind. Well, I want to tell you something. If you change your mind about something, you're not going to continue to do the thing you changed your mind about. There's going to be a new direction as well. But it's, so 
the, the doctrine of repentance here is a doctrine. It may be based on that word, but it is a whole doctrine. And, and we must be careful not just to base something solely on that dictionary definition. And which, unfortunately, in, in the evangelical circles, many are prone to do. Thinking of it as merely a change of mind. Yes, that's what the word means. And repentance is a change of mind, but it's much more. The doctrine is to be derived from how the Spirit of God uses the term in its context. And that's what we see here in this passage. But let me, first of all, emphasize about decisional salvation, which is often based on seeing repentance as a mere change of mind. Once I rejected Christ, but I heard the gospel, and I changed my mind about him, and now I believe and receive him. Well, now, what's wrong with that? Nothing with that statement itself. The question is, is there, has there been true salvation? And what is the doctrine of repentance that's involved here? What's not included in that statement? See, what, what, uh, what, what that person meant by it and what God did in him that is not fully explained here. That's the point. Was there biblical conviction? And Paul talked about that. See what, see what uh, uh, the godly grief, he says, see, for see what uh, earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What earnestness to clear yourself. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. See, that's the issue here. Was there biblical contrition? Did you be, was there sorrow for sin? Now here again, we've got to be careful. Not everybody expresses it in the same way. Some people just pour out tears and they're weeping and they're crying. And others, you don't see anything in their face, but in their minds, they're grieving deeply. There is true sorrow for sin. This work of God differs in everybody because we all respond in a different way. But it must accompany true saving faith. Salvation is a coin. It has two sides. One side is faith. The other side is repentance. And unless the Spirit of God brings one to repentance, there's no true repentance. And if, unless there's a gift of God of faith, there's no true faith. So here Paul speaks of the heart. And when Paul is using it, not of the organ that pumps blood, but of the whole human spiritual experience. The heart consists of mind, how we think, emotion, how we feel, and will, how we respond. True biblical repentance involves the heart, mind, Emotion and will. Feelings of shame, guilt, regret is not necessarily repentance. But must definitely accompany it if it's truly repentance. David felt guilt and shame in his sin with Bathsheba. He said, I know my transgressions and my guilt is ever before me. 
Psalm 53, verse 1. David understood that his sin offended his God. Thus he confessed, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now we look at that and we say, Wait a minute, David. You sinned against some other people too. Look at Uriah. Look at Bathsheba herself. They're, they're victims of your sin. But he's not, he's, while he understand. I think David understood that too, but he understood that the really the root of the whole thing was his offense of, against God. He's not denying his hurt. That his sin hurt Uriah, who lost his life, and Bathsheba, who lost the baby too. His confession acknowledged the root issue, his offense against God. Thus his confession of guilt justified God, so that you may be justified in your words. So, Real repentance is an agreement with God. God, I agree with your evaluation, your assessment of the thing. Worldly grief, worldly repent, worldly grief, only is is selfish. It does not. Unbiblical confession is associated with self justification. Oh yeah, I did wrong. You know, I got to got to say that so that I can get back in the good graces of people, so that they, they can forget about what I just did wrong, so I can get back on track here. It's confessing sin to God does not necessarily then mean automatic cleansing. Understanding how one offends God and agreeing with Him does bring forth forgiveness and pardon. So we we read there in the first two verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Have you experienced genuine repentance in your salvation? Genuine sorrow over offending God is a gift from God. And only that gift leads to true repentance. Now, that brings me to the second point, and, we're, and that's, this one is the short one. We see here the fruit of repentance, and this is verses 12 to 16. So, although I wrote you, this will, and I, and I, this point, will the real Christian please stand up? <laughs> will the real Christian please stand up? Verses 12 and 13, So, although I wrote you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, he says, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more that the joy of Titus, at the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. Which is, first of all, the purpose of the letter was for them to see whether or not they were genuinely repentant. And then the, the joy of the truth, when it was revealed that they were genuinely repentant, how even both Paul and Titus 
uh, we're, re we're refreshed in the matter. And then secondly, now you see why, Paul says, now you see why I said what I said. <laughs> there in verses 14 to 16. For whatsoever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. I bragged on you, but I'm glad it, it uh, didn't bring me any regret. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus also proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. See, there's that, that's the key. Love, the love he has for them, the love they had for him. This is that, that's the bait, that's the foundational point. As he remembers the obedience of you all. No grief, just rejoicing over obedience. How you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Wow. I want to close with Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Father, thank you for your word, for this doctrine of repentance, which is not very often expressed today, but is nevertheless an essential to our spiritual development. Just as we trust you, we repent continually over our own worldliness our own propensity to turn away from you to the flesh we repent of it we ask father for strength to come into our lives to make us holy to complete holiness in the fear of god and we'll praise you and thank you for what you do in us through your gifts and your grace. In Jesus' name.